This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Monty Hurd, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to William Lennon, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. William writes, Been listening for years, but as a humble freelance writer, I usually can't donate. I have a little spare change this month, so I just wanted to show my appreciation. Love the show. So big thanks again to Monty Hurd and to William Lennon, and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 440 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the Terry Gilliam movies Time Bandits, Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And this will involve spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Matthew Kressel, making his 16th appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story, The Last Novelist, or A Dead Lizard in the Yard, was nominated for the Nebula Award and was a finalist for the Yuji Foster Memorial Award. His new novel, Queen of Static, is available now on his Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mattkressel. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's good to be back. Then next up, we've got Tom Gerentzer, making his 15th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy and in books such as New Voices and Science Fiction. His nonfiction book, Think Like Google, is out now. And his new book, How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, will be out in December. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Great to be back. And also joining us today is Chandler Klang-Smith, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's taught creative writing classes at SUNY Purchase and Sarah Lawrence College. And her novel, The Sky is Yours about a surreal science fiction city that for decades has been under attack by dragons, was published in 2018 by Hogarth. So Chandler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so let's start off with Chandler and have you tell us how big of a Terry Gilliam fan were you going into this panel? Um, yeah, Terry Gilliam is probably my favorite film director of all time. I am an enormous fan of his movies. Um, and Brazil is specifically my favorite and was actually a huge influence on This Guy Is Yours. Um, so... Yeah, I'm a really, really big Terry Gilliam fan. But one thing I'll note is that these are actually, except for Brazil, not my favorite Terry Gilliam movies. Um, my top five, I think, would be uh, Brazil, The Fisher King, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Tideland, and Twelve Monkeys. And we only saw one of those. Um, so I'm really, I'm really interested in talking about some of the ways that I think these movies represent some of the indulgences and excesses of uh, Gilliam's work while also having a really, you know, stunning and kaleidoscopic vision at the same time. Um, I think his movies always are visually stunning. And just sometimes in the story department, uh, I think he can kind of, he can kind of give in to a little bit of his self-indulgence. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I guess I'll just explain the reason we're talking about these five is because these were all ones that I hadn't seen. And so I wanted to to watch them and, and talk about them. And also I figured, you know, I, so the ones I had seen, um, I'm, I'm just sort of like a mild to moderate uh, Terry Gilliam fan, but I'd seen 12 Monkeys and Monty Python and the Holy Grail many, many times. 
And I'd also seen The Fisher King and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas just once a long time ago, you know, just once each a long time ago. Um, and I'd also seen the documentary Lost in La Mancha. So, I mean, I, you know, I had a like decent idea of who he was, but people were always talking about Brazil and Time Bandits. I feel like just on this show, just in the last, you know, year, people have brought up Time Bandits over and over and over again. And so I was just like, all right, I gotta, this is becoming a serious professional liability for me to not know what these, <laughs> what, what exactly happens in these movies. So let's, let's no. just bite the bullet and do it. And I loved having an opportunity to revisit these because some of them I hadn't seen in a really long time. And there were things that I loved that I'd forgotten about and things that I found frustrating that I see, like, you know, having a complicated re relationship to other things in his work. So it was super informative and cool to go back to them. Do you have any, do you remember how you first got into Terry Gilliam or do you have any like childhood memories of watching Terry Gilliam movies or anything like that? Yeah, like weirdly enough, I didn't see Time Bandits or Munchausen until I was in college. Um, so my earliest Terry Gilliam experience was actually with watching The Fisher King when I was probably a bit too young for it, like in in some ways. Um, I think I was probably like 10 or 11 and um, watching it on VHS at my parents' house. And um, I just found that movie just profoundly moving, which I still do. Um, I think it's such an honest exploration of relationships. And I think that the way that the fantasy works in that is really visionary and terrifying. Um, the idea that he's being pursued by this, you know, this, this, uh, this red knight that then turns out to be a memory he has from the most traumatic experience of his life. Um, that was just something that, that totally, you know, branded itself on my brain permanently as a way to use fantastical elements in fiction. Um, yeah. As yeah, a window into a character's psychology. Hmm. Yeah. And so like, just, I'm, um, as I said, I'm not a Terry Gilliam expert, but I, I did um, I did some research, and um, I think that Twelve Monkeys and The Fisher King were both scripts that you know had already been written that people came to him you know and said we'd like you to direct this script. Whereas I think the ones we're talking about today were all things that he you know wrote or co-wrote or you know that that maybe expressed like his sensibility more than some of the other things. Yeah, I mean I think that for me a lot of what I admire most about Terry Gilliam comes out of the moments when his, um, you know, visionary escapism comes into some kind of friction with, um, you know, either something in the real world or like you're saying with another creative person's um, imagination. I think that there's something really, really fruitful for him about there being that dialectic where it's like, you know, he's actually, yeah, he, he's actually directly in conversation with somebody else's mind. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, so how about Matt? So, um, Kind of what were how big of a Terry Gilliam fan are you, or were you going into this? Um, well, I used to be a pretty big Terry Gilliam fan. Um, I, I still am, but um, you know, I have uh, I have qualifications on that. Like, I, I used to like pretty much stop whatever I was doing if a Terry Gilliam film came out. Um, yeah, like like um, Twelve Monkeys blew me away. That that movie just like blew my mind. I know we're not talking about that film. And like, as a kid, time bandits was like probably one of my favorite movies, like maybe second to like ET or star Wars or something or close encounters. Like if time bandits was on TV, I'd stop whatever I was doing and have to watch it to the end. And I wanted a map like that so bad <laughs> as a kid, just to <laughs> escape all the bullshit situations I was in. Um, you know, revisiting it now and we'll get into that. Like, I have some, I think my, 
my feelings of, of Terry Gilliam as a director have changed somewhat. Um, I enjoyed the films. I, I think that, uh, he's an incredibly creative director and, um, I like that he's not, um, doing these traditional Hollywood plots. I think he's weakest when he, he has those traditional plots and he's, he's really, really great when he just is, is like playing in his imagination. You know, that being said, I do think that some of his weaknesses are where he goes too far into his imagination and then you lose the thread of the story um, or the narrative isn't clear. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he's, he's a, a very interesting director. I really respect his creative vision that he's pretty much uncompromising in what he's doing with his films. He's like, this is my vision. I want to do it. I know this goes against like 99.9% of everything that's out there in Hollywood, but this is what I want to do. And, you know, sometimes it works spectacularly. Sometimes it doesn't. It's funny. You mentioned that because, you know, I'd never seen, as I said, Time Bandits, but I had heard about it because my favorite interview growing up was with Richard Garriott, the creator of the um, the Ultima series. And the, the games all came with this actual cloth map of the fantasy world that you would explore. And he said that when Time Bandits came out, he was just really sort of mesmerized by the map in the movie. And he would just go to the movie. There was like a dollar movie theater and he would just go over and over and over again. And every time the map came on the screen, he would try to draw it, you know, like, you know, like a spiral notebook and, yeah. um, and sort of figure out if there was any logic to it or anything like that. If If you actually look at the map, you're like, how the hell could anyone figure out where they are <laughs> in this thing? It's not really detailed at all in, in that capacity. Uh, but as a kid, I was just, I was like, I wanted that map. I need that map. I got, I got to get out of here. Yes, <laughs> Find but me I, the next time hole. <laughs> but that always just struck me that, you know, that kind of like dedication and passion where I'm going to watch the whole movie over and over again, just so I can like copy down the map in the like five seconds that it's on the screen. Um, I think that like uh, Gilliam's imagery really invites that like Imaginarium, for example, I was really thinking about just how many moments in that movie, you know, you could just freeze it and have that be a painting, like a surrealist painting. Um, so yeah, I, I just think that that's something that is in his vision that it makes you want to go back and look at the details. Yeah. It's funny. Also, um, Matt was saying these movies feel long. That's just, that's not just in your imagination. These movies actually are long. Uh, Time Bandits is almost two hours long, and it's the shortest of these five. Uh, well, I guess what I mean by that is that sometimes you watch a two-hour film, two-hour-plus film, and you don't notice the time passing. And in fact, when the film ends, you're like, oh, man, it's over? That was that was so awesome. I really felt time passing in these films, especially like after the hour and 20-minute mark on them. I was like, I'd, I'd like pause it and be like, oh, how much time is it? <laughs> 40 minutes? Like, what? Sometimes it was like an hour. I'm like, yeah. wait, like I thought we we're like, you know, nearing the end of the third act. Like, how is there another hour? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, but like, let's get uh, Tom in here as well. So, Tom, uh, how big of a Terry Gilliam fan were you going into these movies? I I was a huge Terry Gilliam fan, but I'm kind of like a lapsed Terry Gilliam fan. Like some people are lapsed Catholics. Um, so he was uh, very influential on me or, or uh, just a huge huge source of fun for me when I was a kid. When I was like 13 years old, I saw my first episode of Monty Python and the whole uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus and was just blown away by his cartoons. 
and later read uh you know a, a book about read in an interview where he was talking about how he approached the other pythons and was like look i love you guys you guys are really funny i want to be part of your show and they're like what do you do and he's like well i do these cartoons and they're like hey we're not really interested in cartoons and he's like well no i have this one where this like there's this like bobby and like his head comes apart and like an egg comes out and then it turns into like a turkey but it's a businessman and it like does it and they're all just like looking at him like we don't know what you're talking about and then he was like well he's trying to explain it they're like look just show us why don't you just go make one and show it to us so he showed him and they were like, wow, this is hilarious. And then they pulled him into the show. And, um, and so that's how he became a Python. And I, and I, I didn't know all that till I got older, but I just was absolutely loved his cartoons as a kid, loved the, the free flowing imagination of them and how like one thing would just turn into something else. And there was no like logic to it, but it, but it made some kind of like funny sense in your head. And, um, and then when he started making movies, you know, like when I saw Time Bandits, I was like, blown away by that didn't know it was him i saw it as a as a young teen and completely blown away with it i I think i have almost the same exact childhood experiences with every movie we talk about as matthew does because the same thing Hmm. to me i I was just like wanted the map wanted to be able to escape these situations in my life um but absolutely absolutely loved it And and it's still like that movie still to this day holds up to me and then his other movies yeah i I want, I'm like a, I'm kind of like a sports fan with him. You know, like a sports fan will, will be like, uh, you know, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bills fan, but it's a tough life. You know, hmm. uh, I'm the same way with Terry Gilliam. Like I, I, every time a new movie from him would come out, I would say, wow, you know, another Terry Gilliam movie. I can't wait to see it. And then I would watch it. And I'd be like, come on, it's gotta be good. It's Terry Gilliam. It's gotta be good. And then sometimes I would just have to admit it wasn't, um, you know, like, like uh the same as Chandler I I really did love the uh uh Brazil I I loved Brazil I thought that was a fantastic movie when I was young and and some of his other movies like Baron Munchausen you know all those I guess we're not going to talk about those yet but some of his other movies I kind of sit through and go oh you know this one's not so great I did love 12 Monkeys that was I forgot that was him actually um uh, but I absolutely loved it and I'm not shocked to learn about the Richard Garriott connection because I absolutely loved uh, Exodus. What is it? Exodus yeah, Ultima, Ultima 3, three when I was, yeah, I loved that when I was a kid and it had the same, it had basically the, the, the gates from time, the time holes, the way they open up those squares, like the rectangles come out of the ground and they're black with like a blue edge to them. Um, that game had those in it. And so I think it was either that one or X or Ultima four. I don't remember. Well, they're, one they're, of those. All, they're, they're in all of them. The moon gates. Oh, the moon gates are in all of them. Okay. So it had those and I was like, wow, that's just like time bands. I love that. So it's not shocking to me that he, uh, that he, he really liked Terry Gilliam as well. But yeah, as I've gotten older, I kind of same with Stephen King. I don't really read Stephen King anymore. I read everything of his up until I was like 28. And the same thing with Terry Gilliam. Like nowadays, I don't really, if I see a movies by him, I don't really seek it out anymore. But I was really glad to get, be able to get the chance to go back and watch all these. Some of them I hadn't seen, and some of them I remembered from you know when I was a young teen or or in my early twenties. Yeah. Well, I guess let me just give you my impressions coming to these, you know, watching them all for the first time. And I wasn't sure I was going to like these movies because I, you know, I sort of had the sense that they were going to be, you know, kind of like weird for weirdness's sake and not have a lot of logic to them. And so I wasn't sure. I tend to like things that have a bit more logic to them or, you know, that that you can puzzle out the underlying logic at least. And so uh, 
So I was a little bit apprehensive about watching these. So I start off, and I watched them in the order that they were released. So I started off with Time Bandits, and um, I thought it was a lot of fun. I could definitely, I mean, it's definitely, I thought, a product of its time. But I was like, oh, I could definitely see why people really liked this in the 80s. Like, and it was it was way better than I was expecting it to be. Um, and then I watched Brazil, and I thought that that was, like, tremendous. I, I really, really loved Brazil. Um, and then I watched The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, I thought it was a little dull. Wasn't crazy about that one. Sort of the same thing with Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I also was, I was a little bit confused and a little bored. And then I actually liked The Man Who Killed Don Quixote a lot more than I was expecting. Um, and I actually liked it probably better than anything except Brazil. Um, hmm. So I don't know, that might be controversial among Terry Gilliam fans. <laughs> but, uh, G- gasps from that gallery. <laughs> But um, I don't know. So, Chandra, what do you think about that? Does that sound how um, how much do your uh, impressions of those movies align with my uh, impressions there? Yeah, you know, actually, um, so I had seen uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote when it first came out, and I was kind of disappointed by it at the time. And then rewatching it now, I liked it a lot better. Um, you know, I think that uh, the Adam Driver character is moment by moment, there's a lot of inconsistency in the writing for his character where he'll be surprised by things it doesn't make sense for him to be surprised by. For example, at one point, Dulcinea is addressing Don Quixote as if, you know, he's really Don Quixote. And he's like, why are you talking like that? And I'm like, how can you not know that she's in character in a role that you previously cast her in, you know? (laughs) Um, So there are these momentary things with his character that don't work. But the arc of his character overall through that film is really satisfying and I think totally works. Um, and I actually think all three of the leads in that film um, have really interesting arcs and there's something that seems really human about the way that um, we sort of see their dreams when they're younger and then the way that those dreams kind of metastasize in, in these negative ways, like, you know, when, like in later adulthood for, for all three of them. So I, I actually, yeah, I probably agree with you that of, of these films that, that we saw for this podcast, um, you know, Brazil is my favorite movie. So Nothing's ever going to touch that, but uh, <laughs> probably Don Quixote was was second for me. And then, yeah, you know, I I also really like Munchausen a lot. Um, I think that like just some of the set pieces in that film are just um, totally unforgettable and almost remain in my memory like their freestanding short films, like when they go to the moon, like um, that whole part yeah. with uh, with the Robin Williams character is just so funny and gorgeous and unforgettable. Um, yeah, you know, and that part where they're uh they're you know, they're playing cards in the ship that's inside of the the whale's belly. Um, you know, there are these moments that feel really discreet and beautiful and painterly and memorable. Uh yeah, the the hot air balloon that's made of the ladies' undergarments, you know. Um, but I think that for me the the script of that is like even more inconsistent and kind of unsatisfying um, than than the Don Quixote one. So it's like I kind of split the difference between them. I'd probably rather watch Munchausen again just because I love to be immersed in that world. But I feel like some of the character stuff and some of the thematic stuff he's trying to achieve in that film never quite deploys. Yeah, well, well all these movies, I have to agree, are unbelievably gorgeous visually and just have the most you know sumptuous visuals and you know like i i all the visual stuff is fantastic but i feel like with um munchausen i think the failing of some of these movies to me is just like 
the the characters um are not sometimes not that interesting and so i don't get that emotionally involved in what's going on because it just kind of feels like a dream where it's like no now we're now we're doing this and then we're doing this and um you know it just sort of feels a little bit random and all over the place um and i but but i think that his um his sensibility works really well when there's you know when it's really funny and i think that brazil and the man who killed don quixote both have just um, some amazing um amazingly funny character interactions and i think that that's what um you know what what sort of makes me like those movies um the best out of these five um but so let's get uh, matt back in here so matt how do your uh, impressions of these movies match up against uh, mine and chandler's well first i want to say this like um you know i was saying this before but I, I feel like i used to love terry gilliam more than i do now and i think a lot of that has to do with um the fact that i'm a writer and then i'm very like the thing is once you start writing fiction or any type of narrative thing you um become really aware of structure like it's it's hard for me especially if you like you're in a critique group like i am it's hard for me to watch anything now or read anything and not think about the narrative structure. And so like, I feel like I was a lot more forgiving of these films when I was younger, um, like Baron Munchausen, for example, which as a, you know, what year, uh, 88, uh, like 80, I remember 89. 89. Yeah. So I was like watching this film and I was like, Oh, this is so great. This is so much fun. And like, didn't really pick up on the fact that there wasn't a lot of characterization going on. There's, there's like, just a, like you said, like a lot of um, scenes, one after another. And, you know, it, it's fun. It has kind of a, a conclusion to it, but it, you know, I think it, it worked for me more on, on the visual fantastical level. Um, I have to say that I've watched Brazil now. I think this was my third time, maybe fourth. And like, I, I enjoy certain aspects of it very, very much, but overall I find the movie really dull. And I know that like others be like, you know, gasp at me for that. I know like people love that movie so much. It's just like, I can't, you know, a lot of it comes down to, I think just it's, it's the length. Like it, it was hard for me to really just get involved in this guy's plight. Like, you know, and one of the things that I noticed about all of Terry Gilliam's films is that like a lot of the women tend to be either non-existent or secondary characters or like you know, objects for the, the males to, to lust after or, or and they, they're not really um, individuated. Right. So in this case, um, I forget uh, I forget her name in Brazil, the, the woman that he's obsessed with uh, um, Jill. Right. Jill something that that she's um, to me. I was like, oh, wow, this is a really fascinating character. But we don't get anything from that. Like it's it's like she's in the background. And then there's this moment where they're speaking in the truck. And, um, like I, I have this, I'm like, oh yes, yes. She's so, she's so awesome. Like, she's like, he's, he's obsessed with her and she, she's like, who are you? Like, who's this schmuck in my cab? And like that interaction between them is brilliant. And I'm like, oh my God, she's the, she's the greatest character ever. And then we really don't get any story behind her. We don't get any of her point of view. I mean, she's just basically, you know, in the background. And, and and I kind of felt that way with a lot of like Gilliam stuff with a lot with, with the women particularly, but yeah, I mean, Brazil, like, you know, the sets are, are great. And like, I, I love like the ducting, like everywhere you <laughs> go, like even you have this beautiful fountain, but let's th throw some ducks through it. I mean, it's a, to me, I, I saw 
Brazil is pretty much just like a satire of Blade Runner, right? So uh, it came out like a few years after Blade Runner. I'm sure Terry Gilliam saw it. I mean, there's scenes that I think that were ripped off right out of Blade Runner and, but done it in like a kind of satire way. Yeah. Well, well, I sort of saw Brazil. It's like, I saw it as like, it's like 1984 played as a, um, like British, um, comedy of manners where yes, 1984, of course, is huge influence on it. You're in this like dystopian world, but that's not actually the main source of stress for the main character. It's actually just like getting into these awkward social situations over and over (laughs) and over again and just being uncomfortable. And, uh, I, I just really thought that that was funny. Um, but I want to get, uh, Tom back in here. So Tom, what do you think of, since you're a real humor writer, what do you, do you think, do you agree with me that Brazil and the man who killed Don Quixote are, are funny in a way that the other ones aren't as funny? Yeah, I, uh, well, I don't know. I, I think Time Bandits is by far the funniest one from, for my taste, but, um, but I, I agreed with you almost whole cloth on these, on your impression that you, you know, you said you, you like Time Bandits, you like Brazil, and uh you liked uh Man Who Killed Don Quixote and and then the others you weren't quite as uh you weren't what was it, Imaginarium and, and Munchausen, you weren't quite as yeah. thrilled about those. And I, I felt the same way. I thought Munchausen had some great moments in it. Um the Robin Williams part, how could that not be great? But uh but you know, a lot of it was just kind of I felt like I was just kind of waiting for stuff to trying to figure out like, well, okay, so what what are we doing here? What's what's this gonna turn into? Um, and the same thing with the Imaginarium, although that definitely does have a plot structure. It definitely does go somewhere and it is kind of cool, but it, it, I don't know. It just seems to kind of drag. Even, even Don Quixote, I thought dragged. There was like a giant chunk in the middle where I was just like, okay, this is just like him yelling her name, Adam Driver yelling the lead. Well, lead female character's name over and over no, and over. All again, these movies know. I thought should have been half an hour shorter. I mean, just across the board, but, um, and in that's interesting. Time- I don't. I don't feel that about time minutes at all. I feel. I feel like that's almost. I still. You know. I'm not. Uh, Matt, hearing you talk about your understanding of plot and structure and characterization, I wish I had that in my head because I <laughs> really. I really do aspire to be more of like you know a novelist. I'd love to write novels. I've. I've always done fairly well at short fiction, and then when it comes to novels, I just can't figure it out. But um, I would love to have that structure in my head. But I don't have it in my head, but I, maybe that's, you know, that lets me enjoy movies like this a little bit more. But I, I absolutely feel like this is a, you know, having given that qualification, I feel like this is just a perfect movie. I feel like Time Bandits is just. Oh, I love Time Bandits. I mean, yeah, like, like, okay. I, I think that certain directors are really, really good at setting up characters right away. So you don't need a lot of backstory. You know, I, I recently watched Goonies and, like all those kids, they get like zero backstory. They're cliches, but they're just like, boom, you know who they are. That's all we need. And like Time Man, it's like, yeah, they're, they're just, they're, they like, they were doing trees and shrubs for God. And they're like, you know what? <laughs> Let, let's, let's go steal the time map and, and, and become, you know, uh, thieves throughout time and space. And I'm like, yes, like I'm with you. Like I'll go anywhere with you. Like that, yeah. like, they, like they were just so, and like, you know, the, the, the Time Man, it's like, Besides the uh, the leader, they, they're all kind of interchangeable. Like they, each one doesn't have you, you know that much of a unique personality, but as a group, you just you love them. So like I, I I guess what I'm saying is like I feel as if Time Manets has a very clear like narrative structure from the start. They stole the map. The supreme beings trying to get the map. 
but the devil's also trying to get them out, right? Yeah. And like, so you know, like one of them's going to win at the end. Where, where, like, you know, I, I thought that, like, for example, the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. Like, I love the setup. I love this idea of this immortal monk who makes a deal with the devil. Now, the nature of that deal, I couldn't quite figure out. Like something to do with souls, but I didn't understand what exactly was happening with the souls. But yeah. The, the, this this idea that he he makes this deal with the devil and then his his daughter is the price like that's an amazing setup and I I love this idea that they have this like traveling house basically that that is also their stage um, that's like you know led by horses you know pulled by horses and and you know Heath Ledger was amazing in that and but it was like I I feel like somewhere in the middle of that it just like it all kind of gets muddied and and then by the end you realize oh okay Heath Ledger he was really a thief and he was didn't have amnesia and he was you know he was a criminal he was selling like children's organs I think so like all of that's there but what happens is you know I, I feel like Terry Gilliam's strength is also his weakness right so his strength is his imagination his creativity um which is gonzo and I love it, but that's also his weakness because sometimes he goes so far into his own imagination that the story gets muddied. Like, like, like you said, Dave, each of these could be 20 minutes shorter. I, I think maybe 40 minutes shorter. And, and like, if, if that movie had a really good editor, it would be fa- imaginary and would be fantastic. But the fact is it, it gets, it sags in the middle. And then by the time I get to the end, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, Okay, guess well, we're we're here. Well, well, yeah, and um, I don't know if you know or not, but you know Heath Ledger died midway yeah, through yeah. filming, right? And so that's why the you know Jude Law and Johnny Depp and um, Colin Farrell like play him in the sort of fantasy world. So who knows how much that kind of derailed the story? But oh, I'm sure, I mean, I think he tried to produce the film like for twenty years or, so, or fifteen years before he got it through, and. A lot of false starts, yeah, and Heath Ledger's death, of course. Yeah. I th- I, by the way, I think that I think he handled that amazingly well. Like the the way he, the what he did in the in the movie, I I remember when that happened. I remember being like kind of you know by then a lapsed fan of Terry Gilliam and being like, oh, he's making this movie. And then you know I, I like I love Heath Heath Ledger in uh, in the Batman movie. Which, I don't remember which one it was. Dark one of the Dark Knight movies. But, uh, but yeah, but I loved him in that. And then when he died, it was such a horrible tragedy. And, you know, I remember thinking about him and, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, same thing. It was, it was heroin, right? Overdose. Yeah, I think so. And I remember reading the articles about it and being like, oh, it's such a tragedy. And then reading about how he was in this Terry Gilliam movie. And I remember thinking like, oh, poor Terry Gilliam and poor, well, obviously poor Heath Ledger, but poor Terry Gilliam is in the middle of this movie and now he can't finish it. And then I, you know, I remember reading articles later. Well, he's still going to try to finish it. He's going to use Johnny Depp, and you know, he's going to use these other actors and kind of swap them out. And I remember thinking, like, oh, okay, well, that's a good like tribute to Heath Ledger to do that to not give it over to someone else and have them reshoot everything. But I don't know how it's going to work. Well, when I watched this though, that all kind of came flooding back because it was a long time ago when I remember reading those articles. Mm-hmm. But that all came flooding back when I watched this. I was like, wait a minute, why is Johnny Depp here? And then I was like, oh yeah, this is that movie. And, um, and I was blown away by how well it worked. I thought, you know, every time he's in the real world, he's Heath Ledger, but every time he goes into the Imaginarium, he's somebody different because the, the way that, you know, the order in which he 
Gilliam shot the different scenes, but I was like, no, this this absolutely works. It like, but it, he made it work narratively because Heath Ledger's character wanted to escape, right? He need he wanted to get have a different life because people right. were out to kill him. So in his own imagination, he's somebody else. Right, right. He's also a grifter, so if I had if I hadn't known that whole backstory, I would have I wouldn't have even thought there was anything wrong. I would have been like, Oh yeah, that's how that worked. If I hadn't known about Heath Ledger's death, I would have thought, Yeah, this is how this movie works. So I, I my hat's off to him for the way he handled it. I wanna get Chandler back in here. So Chandler, um as I said, I was not totally clear what was going on in Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus and I feel like, I, I mean, I, I basically understood what was going on, but I, a lot of times I just didn't know what the stakes were and, you know, how I should feel about this or, you know, whether this was a serious problem or, or not. So I'm just curious, did you feel like you understood, like how, how, how well do you think you, do you feel like you understood what the, what the stakes were and what was possible and not in this, in this world? I feel like I understand it. And I think I also understand why it doesn't quite connect. Um, so I think like one of the problems is that, so the the wager that he has with the devil is this thing about first to five souls. Um, within the Imaginarium, there's always a choice. And we see one, an example of this at the very beginning of the film, um, that there's sort of a difficult path for the person and an easy path for the person, you know, a, a sort of instant gratification path and like um, a path that requires something more from them. And, and those are the paths that are like, you know, aligned with like if if they the guy at the beginning um you know, he's drinking heavily in this club he wanders into the imaginarium and then he has this option to climb these steps up this mountain uh toward enlightenment or to go to the saloon that's run by Tom Waits like who plays the devil um and yeah so the idea is that Parnassus and the devil are sort of duking it out for people's imaginations and that the world and the choice that is crafted for them emerges from those characters imaginations but I think that this like runs into like a bunch of world building problems because for one thing, we're told that whenever there is more than one person in the Imaginarium, it contaminates it. And then yeah. almost every case after that first one, we where we see the Imaginarium, um, it's multiple people in there, um, <laughs> often including Heath Ledger's character. Um, so it's like constantly, it kind of like sets up this thing that's already a pretty complicated idea, and then it immediately complicates it more. Um, so I thought that that was like a bit of a problem. I think another problem is that it seems like the devil is going to be the sort of real antagonist that he wants to win the soul of Parnassus's daughter um, as, you know, as the prize for this wager. Um, but then he actually turns out to be a really good guy who doesn't want to do that. <laughs> and for me, that just did not work at all in terms of the stakes. Um, I just thought really? it was... I mean, I, I found it hard to believe that Tom Waits' devil character would be truly malevolent because he's, I absolutely love him. Um, <laughs> but I just feel like if you're trying to create that friction around this already super high concept, then adding this complexity about like this character has a different persona than it makes sense for them to have in the story kind of just makes it, I don't know. I, a I, little, I didn't take a it that muddier. way. Like, I yeah. didn't take it that he was feeling, um, feeling bad i i took it that he was bored like i i took it that like he likes to play these games and have these challenges if he wins there's no challenge the de even the devil himself needs to be challenged so like he that's why he's like you know what let's make another wager you know i i won and, and but i don't i don't want to i don't want to win i want to still be playing this game with you because that's more fun than winning 
I agree with Chandler 100%. Uh, I agree 100%. That was the part about the movie that really, apart from it being a bit long, especially in the middle, that part of the movie at the end, I was like, I don't get it. And, and I think that comes out of, um, you know, like you said, he's got this great imagination. And a lot of ways, you know, if you read, what's that? There's a book called Lateral Thinking by Edward de Bono, where he talks about how creativity is just taking things that aren't creative and then standing them on their head. Um, or, or putting things together that don't go together in a new way. And I think that's what Gilliam's great at is he takes these things that you wouldn't think that this would, this would go with this or, or, you know, you, you, he can never just have, um, you know, the devil just be evil or something just be the way it is. He's got to take everything that we take for granted and be like, aha, but it's not what you think it is. Nothing can ever be what you think it is. And I think sometimes, I think a lot of times that's where his most brilliant ideas come out of. But a lot of times I feel like you just, sometimes you just have to have things be what they are. Um, just to, like you said, to add that extra layer of complexity, you, you kind of go too far in some cases and, and get a little too much complexity. And I, once, once the devil, once Tom, and I agree, Tom Waits is absolutely amazing. I thought he was kind of, I don't know, I thought he was kind of wasted a little bit in this role. I, I didn't feel like he, I was like, Oh, great. It's Tom Waits. He's playing the devil. And then the more I watched him, the more I was kind of thinking, yeah, but he's not really, he's just kind of going through it, I feel like. Um, I don't know, then, I thought he was super creepy in this. I, I I I thought he was great in this. And like, yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't think that the devil had any, any redemption arc. I, I think it was just, for him, it was just, you know, he needed, he needed to have this challenge. Can anyone explain to me the part where um, they're having the women, the sort of women in the mall go into the, imaginarium and they're all having this like blissful experience because that seems completely different from how the imaginarium functions at every yeah. other point in the movie well yeah i mean um so i think that that is another world building problem so dr parnassus has this ability to create this dreamscape that's custom made for the person who enters it which is something that so many people would be interested in doing and there's no reason that this couldn't be something that was a sort of high class affair that could get them money and worldly comforts if, if they want them. Um, it's not clear to me if we're supposed to think because he was a monk in his life before he's taken a sort of vow of poverty with how he approaches the show. But then when Heath Ledger suggests, I'm going to sort of change things up and have a more upscale version of our show, he immediately goes along with it with no resistance. So number one, I think that's a world building problem that just doesn't make any sense. So then the idea there is that Heath Ledger's character sees that like there's this opportunity to sort of class up what they're doing and get get more money from people because he's a grifter and that's what his focus is. Um, and he's also really seductive. So they have these women, you know, in this um, upscale shopping mall entering the Imaginarium and the stage has been sort of reimagined to look like more like a fashion shoot or something. Um, and then pretty much every time Heath Ledger is able to direct the, the women to, uh, give their soul to Parnassus instead of to the devil. Um, there's that moment in the one that we see fully dramatized where the woman goes in and at first she, um, you know, she just wants to go to a hotel with like the Heath Ledger character who I believe is played by Johnny Depp in that sequence. Um, and then he says, no, but instead of, we can either go to this hotel, which is the devil path or, you can enter the realm of the immortals. And there are, are these like gondolas with images of like Princess Di and various other beautiful people who died young. Um, and so she chooses that, that immortality because he presents it so seductively. And so the idea is supposed to be 
now that Parnassus has this guy on his side, that's going to help him in his wager with the devil because he can sell the path to enlightenment in a more glamorous way, I guess. I didn't understand that, though. Like, he was offering them immortality by dying early, or at least to the, the first woman. I didn't understand how that was... Then she doesn't die. She just (laughs) leaves the Imaginarium. I mean, there are definitely world-building problems in that movie in, like, every scene. (laughs) Like, I think it was pretty clear when the drunk goes in and he's either – he could go to the bar or he could go the other direction and he chooses the bar and then the bar blows up, right? So, like, I think that was clear. Like, oh, you chose this, this, you know, self-destructive path and and then you don't get out. But, like – yeah, for for like when the women were going into the thing, I'm like, I don't understand what's actually happening to them. And, you know, they're coming out. Are they different somehow? Like, because one of the things, one of the themes that I see repeated in Gilliam's work is this idea that like, you know, with the, um, you know, scientific revolution, the enlightenment, you know, we shouldn't throw away the... Uh, imaginative aspects of of human culture, like the irrational, right? So I feel like the Imaginarium was like encouraging that, right? But it just, it it gets like, it got muddied in there. Like I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Well, well, I feel like that's, yeah, that's sort of the thing with all these movies to my mind, except maybe Brazil is that there's like so many things stuffed into them that it all kind of it doesn't focus on and, you know, it doesn't, it's not focused enough. And I did feel that in in Baron Munchausen because that's, you know, set up to be a major theme in Baron Munchausen, what you were just saying, Matt, the sort of age of reason versus the age of superstition. But it kind of like, I don't know, it sort of got lost in there somewhere. And I thought, I forget who said it, but like like the the one scene in terms of the characters that really um, moved me in Munchausen is where all the heroes come back, but then they're too old to, you know, they, they don't, they can't do all, they don't have their superpowers anymore. They're, um, you know, and 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 the the little girls like no you have to don't you understand they're old now, and I felt like that was like the most poignant part of the movie where you expect there expect there to be some real like character moment, um but then he's just kind of like come on guys, yeah. have a have a good attitude and then they all have well, their superpowers. I don't again. know I think that I think that does that does further the theme you're talking about of age of reason versus age of in, uh what was it superstition age of reason superstition yeah, age like, of superstition. So he is all about I I thought, you know, if that movie had been shorter and had had a good editor like I think Matt said, it would have been a really good movie and I think that if you if you really you have to pay attention to figure out the theme and to watch the story what he intended the story to be, but I think it was I think it it speaks to what Terry Gilliam himself feels is that, you know, here's a guy who started out making these free-flowing short cartoons that everybody actually absolutely loved for their inventiveness. And now he's got to be making Hollywood movies where you have to have a plot. And so he's those are two things that are warring in his head. Well, Baron, I think the reason the story of Baron Munchausen appealed to him is because that's the same thing going, that's the same conflict going on in that movie. Is, you know, people are telling him, no, you got to be rational. And he's saying, no, I want to be creative and free and like do all these awesome things that I can do. I want to use all these superpowers and this, you know, this team of, of heroes that has all these superpowers. I don't want to think about reason and why things don't work and why you can't sail to the moon and all that. I just want to do it because it's really fun. And so when you get to the end, 
that is the resolution of that conflict where she's the little girl is saying, no, you have to understand this is reality. They're old now. And he's like, no, this is we're sticking with the age of, of superstition. This is this is we're going to do right. what, what I want to do because I want to do it even no, to no. the point where he dies. And then he's like, it's OK that I died because it's this is part of my story, no, um, but, which which well, which, no. by the way, if I can just quickly just finish this point. Um, that's the way the movie starts out with that frame story where he interrupts the the play stage play about himself, where everybody is laughing at the things that go wrong with the special effects and people can see the strings and the sets falling apart and it's not working. And he's like, no, that's not the point. Like, never mind all that stuff. What matters is the cool things that I want to show you. So sorry, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, but that, that's a all you I That sounds great. Everything you just said. I just feel like in terms of the fo focus on the feelings of the characters is too quick. You know, it's like, you know, if, if that's what the story is about is, is, is this big, is, if it's all building up to this big moment where the characters um, have to, where there's this choice between ex acknowledging reality and, um, you know, superseding it or whatever, transcending it. Um, I just, I just feel like it happens way too fast if that's, you know, so emotionally it doesn't really hit me. You know, it just feels like, I, oh, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're supposed to necessarily feel the like character arc of the secondary characters. Like I, I feel as if in a, in a way the viewer is the character, right? Because the story is so irrational. Like, well, of course we can sail to the moon, you know, and of course we can like the moon, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the arc of the moon, the crescent of the moon, you can just, you know, put a lasso on it and, and climb down and, and cut the top rope from the, you know, and use that yeah. to tie it to the bottom and still hang there. It's like, it's like, the, basically, he's saying, like, follow your imagination, don't always necessarily follow what you think is rationally possible to happen next, even to the point of his own of his own death. I mean, and so like, I think, like you, he was basically trying, like you, the viewer are the other arc in Baron Munchausen. That's how I see it. Like the character arc. It's like, you're starting off with this rational story and it's very, very irrational. And you get to the end. Well, like that didn't really make sense, but what a journey, right? <laughs> like well, what a fun journey. You know, I, I would, I would say that, um, you know, there's that expression about like a, a writer is supposed to have a shard of ice in their heart. Um, I don't know who originally said that, but like, I would say, you know, the same thing applies to all of the narrative art forms. And I think that like sometimes the problem is that Terry Gilliam isn't willing to have that shard of ice in his heart. Um, but when he's at his best, um, the in his films, there's always a fabulous character, a, an escapist character, a character that kind of represents the imagination. And in his strongest films, that character meets meaningful opposition. I think that Terry Gilliam probably in his in his own life and his own artistic career has so often felt that he himself was battling against these like these these opposing forces that he sometimes doesn't really want to give those forces to his stories because he he loves his characters too much. He doesn't want them to have to, you know, endure that struggle. But when he does it, when he has uh, you know, the unstoppable force of the imagination run up against the, you know, immovable wall of uh reality, I mean, that's just when he just completely shatters me. Um, and I think that the ending... Like Fisher King, right? Fisher King and the ending of Brazil, which is my favorite sequence in any movie. Um, I think that I, I, you know, I don't know if I've ever watched it without crying. I mean, I just find it so, so moving that, um, you know, uh, Jonathan Price's character is, um, you know, being tortured and then, you know, the 
the rescue troop comes in, they, you know, they save him. He, he runs at, you know, madcap speed through, uh, you know, through all of these obstacles. And then, you know, he and Jill finally are off riding into the sunset. And then we realize that his mind has been shattered and that all of that was in his head. Um, you know, it's so, I think it's so incredibly poignant because, um, you know, Gilliam allows himself to depict all of that beautiful stuff. And then he also allows himself to depict the reality that surrounds it. He pulls out and you, you know, you see the edges of that frame. Well, that was the one time like in, you know, usually they say, Oh, you know, having it end with it all was a dream was really disappointing. And, and, you know, um, yeah, like it fell flat. But in in this case, like, I think it really works because when, when he was, when he escaped and he gets the girl and the driving in the sunset, I'm like, ah, that's kind of weak. But then he realized like, oh no, it's all a dream. Well, actually, could I, could I ask you Chandler, since you've seen this movie uh, repeatedly, um, at the very end, the Michael Palin character says something like, or they have a conversation that goes something like he got away from us or we lost him or something like that. He and got away from us. And then, and then you're right, he's gone. And I wasn't sure, are, is that supposed to be triumphant in any way that he's escaped into his imagination and he's not like in their clutches anymore? Or, or, or is it supposed to be a complete like downbeat defeated ending? I was, I was a little, I wasn't sure about that. I mean, it really depends on, on your perspective, I think. Like, I think that that's, that's up to the viewer to decide if there is a triumph in escaping into your own mind, um, away from reality, or if that is ultimately, you know, ultimately a failure that it would, it would have been better for him to, you know, consciously endure the torture and then meaningful, meaningfully resist in some way in the society. It's like, I don't know. Like, I, I think, I think that that's ambiguous and it's meant to be ambiguous because I also think that like, you know, Brazil is really a movie about a character who is, um, you know, for most of his life complicit in this system. You know, he, doesn't like it, but he goes along with it and even actively participates in it. He's part of that bureaucracy. And, um, you know, so for me, the real triumph is the fact that he stands up to it at all in the first place. But there's a point beyond which he can't go. Um, and I think that, I think that Gilliam is incredibly empathetic with him. Um, but I also don't necessarily think that that's an act of heroism. It's an act of being, being shattered by something that's, you know, steamrolling over you. Um, yeah, I think that the comparison with 1984 is really apt. Like, you know, both of them yeah. are, yeah, both of them are really about these Well, they have the exact same plot, pretty much. Yeah, they totally, I mean, yeah. they totally do. Um, I agree about the ending, too. And I, you know, when I, when I first saw this, I had two very different experiences with this movie when I was, I don't know how old I was, in my early 20s versus now. Um, in my early 20s, that ending that you guys are talking about, I was like, oh, it's an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge ending it's a jacob's ladder ending. there was another 80s movie called jacob's ladder that um that a friend i've just ruined the ending for anybody who hasn't seen it but um but a friend of mine at one point was like oh yeah we went to see that movie jacob's ladder and i was like don't tell me anything about it i really <laughs> want to see it and he goes oh i won't tell you anything but have you have you ever read that short story in occurrence at Alfred? <laughs> <laughs> and i went oh, no. you just ruined the movie for me he goes, how did i ruin the movie i was like come on well, it's it's funny because, you know, I'd never seen this before, but it's approaching the ending and all of a sudden, like some something that somebody said in an episode, you know, of, of this podcast, like nine years ago, popped into my head where we were talking about some other movie that you haven't mentioned where they're like, they told her at the ending off from Brazil. And I was like, God damn it. Now I know how this movie is going to end. <laughs> you know, well, one thing I well, will so say. 
So just super fast, though, in yeah. comparison with 1984, if you're thinking, is the ending of Brazil triumphant or not? You know, the ending of 1984 is he loved Big Brother, but the ending of Brazil is he still loves Jill. So yeah. in that sense, he does triumph. So. Yeah, I agree. And when I when I first watched this movie when I was young, I was I was destroyed by the end of it. I was like, that is such a uh, like a mind bending movie. Like, you know, he gets to the end and, and of course, you know, I could tell even the first time I saw it that the ending was too much of a dream sequence. And I was thinking he's probably getting lobotomized right now. And then at the end, when that's what mm -hmm. happened, I was like, I knew it. Oh, that's such a gut wrenching thing. It's such a tragedy. And when I watched it again this time, though, I got the same feeling and I agree a hundred percent with the Blade Runner comparison. In fact, the end of Blade Runner, um, he, happy ending. he want well he wanted to have a sad ending the director right. uh was it ridley scott ridley yeah. scott yeah wanted to have a sad ending and the studio made him redo it with a happy ending mm -hmm. so he took the the opening scenes the opening shots aerial shots from the shining and mm -hmm. and made those the ending like that they're flying and here's what they're seeing it's like fine it's the shining though at least i know this is still not a happy ending um and, <laughs> and i mean that's i read that in an interview and and you can 100% trust me because my memory is infallible. But uh, <laughs> well, but, you don't need to tell Matt Cresso anything about Blade Runner. You, you are right; it is from <laughs> The Shining. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the thing about the elevator too, like the elevator in this movie, I got confused with the elevator in Blade Runner going up to the penthouse to the to the mm -hmm. you know the Overlord's apartment. Um, when I watched this movie and he did the "Here I Am" JH line, I was like, oh, I th I thought that was from Blade Runner. That I got that confused. But um, but. When I watched it again as as a 51-year-old man, that ending, when I was watching it and thinking, here comes, you know, the tragic ending, I was watching, like, everything you said, Chandler, I 100% agree with about how he's, you know, he's complicit, and you too, Matt, about how he's complicit in this, in this horrible society, but he starts to rebel against it, and isn't that awesome? But I also started to pay more attention to the Michael Palin character, and he was... Talk about a conflicted character. He was like so high up, but he's again is just a cog in the system. You know, he's like, oh, so how's your kids? You know, he's like wants to be a nice guy, but then you see like him interacting with his kids and you're like, he's not a nice guy. He's completely broken. He's completely twisted by this society, but he wants to be a nice guy. And at the end, I had a totally different experience where I was like, I think, and I don't know if I'm right about this. It's just again, like you said, it's subjective, but my experience was, I think he, was trying to set his friend free in the only way he knew how. And I think he was such an artist mm. with that sharp pointy tool he used that he was like, I'm not, his job was to, based on what he did to the other people that you see him torturing, his job is to pull information out of people. And he did not do that with, uh, what's that's the guy's an interesting name? Jack? Take. Yeah, that's really he didn't do it with him. He like went in harmlessly. Now I have to rewatch that last scene just to see that. Yeah, I, 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 it was the way I took it is like, and cause he smiles, he goes, nope, he got away from us. And he was like smiling. And I was like, oh, he like, he set him free in the only way he knew how to set his friend free. And then, you know, whether or not you can, you can say, you know, the main character could, um, could fight back in some way. I, I think the movie is saying once a society gets to this point where it's so, everything is so locked down. There is no freedom anymore. There is no escape. There is like he even says he says to her at one point to the to the female lead at one point, you know, to Jill, um, you know, we're going to we're going to escape. We're going to do whatever. And she's like, there, there's no escape. You can't escape. 
And, and I, I think that's, that's the kind of the message is look, the only escape that's possible for anybody, any individual in that society is to retreat inside their own mind. I want to get Chandler back in here. Um, and Chandler earlier, Matt said all sorts of criticism about this movie, including that, you know, the female characters underdeveloped and stuff like that. I was just wondering if you wanted to, since this is your favorite movie, if you wanted to respond. Yeah. I mean, I actually, you know, I do, I do think that in some of Terry Gilliam's movies, uh, you know, the female characters are more of a plot device than like fully developed. But I think that like the reason that in that department, I wouldn't criticize Brazil. Uh, there are a couple of different reasons. One is that, um, it is very much a first person perspective that we're in throughout the film. Uh, Sam Lowry's fantasies are placed on equal footing with like real scenes in terms of like, you know, taking up visual space in the frame. Um, so we're kind of constantly seeing everything from his perspective. And I think that it makes sense that he doesn't, you know, part of what's fascinating to me about Jill is that like, there are all of these clues that she has a life outside of his perspective and we don't have access to that, but neither does he. And, um, you know, so to me, that seems like it works. Like she has that bandage on her hand and we never find out what that's all about. You know, clearly she, she has this, uh, I feel like she's been a participant in some kind of resistance within this world. And like, you know, it's just, it's left mysterious and that makes her really intriguing. So I don't, I don't have a problem with Jill. And I also think that there are other female characters in the movie um, that are really complicated, like Sam Lowry's mom. Um, I think she is a fantastic character, was a big yeah. influence on a character in my novel, The Sky is Yours. Um, it, and, you know, uh, there's, there's a mom character named Pippi Dahlberg in my book that, you know, I kind of pictured someone very similar to uh, the, the mom in Brazil. Um, and, you know, she has, she has the friend who, you know, my complication had a little complication. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the sort of like avatar of death in the movie is, is also female, you know, which is not something that you really see in a lot of Terry Gilliam movies. And then there's also the woman that, um, that his mom is trying to sort of set him yeah, up with. Yeah. And one of my favorite little micro moments is they're having an awkward conversation. She feels humiliated by the fact that, you know, that their parents are trying to like shove them together. Um, and as he gets up to go, this range of expressions play across her face, <laughs> like rage, humiliation, <laughs> like, yeah. And you see Sam differently in that moment. You're like, you know, it, it, you, like for me, certainly, you know, um, like as a female viewer of the film, it's like, you know, you know, to have somebody who is like, you know, so, so devoted and, and, you know, fascinated by you, that would be amazing. But then you see that the flip side of that is that, you know, this other woman is sort of invisible to him and he's not really all that nice to her. And you, you get her perspective just from well, that little bit of acting, you know? And that's, so. but, and that's right after she says to him, like, it's okay. I don't like you either. Right. Isn't yes. That? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, and the, the mother character too, there is a fantastic scene near the end that just rips my heart out every time where, uh, where he's like, mom, mother, like, mom, please help me. And she's like, stop calling me that because she's all young now and she's and she <laughs> yeah. and she's totally beautiful and she's got all these young guys after her and she's just like leave me go away you're not my son anymore i'm i've got a new reality now that mm -hmm. that like i don't and know that for one me second away. her face actually becomes jill right that's in that last fantasy sequence and it's right. like really horrifying um from like a sort of oedipal perspective um yeah no i mean <laughs> so i just think that the the female characters in brazil Gilliam often has a single idealized female character in his films who is not given a ton of internal life. And I actually think that that's not true in Brazil at all, that like you have a range of women who all seem to have their own stories going on and who sometimes represent, you know, 
death or like, uh, you know, complete allegiance to the system in the case of the mom, giving him something for an executive, you know? I, I think that's a good point that you said, like, th- this film is, is you know, pretty much in a really close point of view of Sam Lowry. So we don't really get these other characters, especially, like you said, because his fantasies, you know, they're played out as if, you know, in the same attention as as the reality. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I that I find most horrifying about Brazil that I, I feel is like, you know, applicable to today is like this idea of just like a society that's taken over by bureaucracy. And, and the, like, that's the most horrifying thing. I mean, obviously the torture and all that, the other stuff, but this idea that like you could die because of like a, misprint. Know, a mistake and pay a misprint. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is something that's like, it's, it's real. Um, so like anyone who's ever had to deal with like a health insurance company, right. And it's like, well, you didn't dot your, you know, your, your, your form 17 point B and you didn't fax it yeah. in triplicate over to these 17 addresses. Like, you know, it, it's this, like, I think our, you know, reliance on like bureaucracy to maintain society has actually, you know, only grown. And like, you know, 1985 is like, you know, the beginning of like the personal computer revolution. So I think, you know, Terry Gilliam it, it was looking at it, like you see these computers, like they're these really kind of horrifying things in this world that they, 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 uh, they, they just look like mad scientist devices. And, and, you know, that like, you have people whose job it is just to like, you know, um, you know, um, transcribe someone's screams and, and that's their role. Like they're just, and that she's doing it happily because that's her job. Right. Well, um, well, yeah, just yeah. the moment too, where the woman's husband is being disappeared with the hood over his head and the bureaucrat comes in and says, and here's your receipt for your husband. And here's my receipt for your receipt and all this stuff where you know yeah. that she's, ne- and she knows she's never, never seeing him again, but there's all this like, all these forms and everything that, you know, don't protect you at the all. The legality of it. And like that aspect of it, um, to me was the most horrifying, I think of the, of the film. Yeah. All right. So I want to get, also, into- I have to say just really quick, like, I mean, there was nothing cooler than watching De Niro go down a zip line. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole, the whole scene where he's fixing the duct and then Bob Hoskins and the other guys show up. And that, that was my favorite part of the movie. The whole like, that's fantastic. Tense, uncomfortable situation there. But I want to get into more about Don Quixote before we run out of time. Um, just in case people don't know, um, you know, Terry Gilliam tried to m- make this movie for like 30 years and, uh, and it kept falling apart and he had to recast it and restart it over and over again. And there's an amazing documentary called Lost in La Mancha about when he tried to film it with, um, Johnny Depp, you know, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, 10 to 20 years ago. And the whole, and, and, and they filmed for like eight days or something. And then the whole thing, uh, you know, there was just a series, an unbelievable run of bad luck and the whole thing, uh, got shut down. Um, but so I, but I thought this was really, like I said, I thought this, I, I thought the first half of this was, uh, I was really engaged in it. And I, I, I sort of thought it, it kind of like, like a lot of these movies, it kind of got overstuffed and too long and a little muddled and confused toward the end. But, um, I, I thought there was a lot to like about it. But, but my main thing I want to talk about is like, I feel like the, uh, sort of the structure of the story is supposed to be that Adam Driver's character gets more and more sucked into the fantasy, or, or at least the alternate reality, and then ultimately he ends up totally in the fantasy when he takes over as Don Quixote at the end. And I felt like that 
um, that that moment at the end where he becomes Don Quixote seemed to me to come too abruptly or kind of out of nowhere. And I felt like, you know, that that, you know, being subsumed in the fantasy should have been more like consistent throughout the runtime of the movie. Um, so that's the kind of thing I want to throw out there to see what people thought about that. I agree 100%. I mean, um, he just kind of wakes up and he thinks he's Don Quixote. You know, like this film for me, I really, I thought the setup was great. You know, he's kind of like this, um, he was supposedly this hotshot director, you know, destined for Hollywood. He he did, he shot this uh, beautiful student film in this small Spanish town. And now he's, you know, I don't know how many years later, a decade or so, he's he's there and he's shooting commercials. He never made it to Hollywood. He's kind of, you know, and he's he's disappointed in his life. And then he discovers, oh, the town I shot that film that started this is like just a few miles away. Let me go check it out. Like, I love that setup. And then he finds that, you know, the, the actor that he used for Don Quixote thinks he's Don Quixote now. Like, that was such a great setup. But well, I think... Well, yeah, also, yeah. and the fact that, like, him making this little movie has destroyed the lives of everyone. Destroyed the it. lives of everyone in it, right, including the girl. Although I didn't quite take it that he was 100% responsible for that. Like, I mean, they, they blamed him, but, I mean, you know, so he put an idea in the girl's head that, yo, she could be, she's beautiful, she could be an actress. You know, I, I don't think that that was his fault that, you know, she made the life decisions that she did. And I don't think it was his fault that the, the, the man who thought he was Don Quixote, I mean, he was, you know, just, but, but, but I, I don't think it was necessarily that he was to blame, but it's just like, it wouldn't have happened without him, but it was more like the blame falls with the like, um, sinister power of dreams or sort of, you know, the, the, the toxic allure of fame or, or something like that. Or it reminded fantasy. me, it reminded me a lot of, uh, Again, sorry to keep talking about The Fisher King since that isn't one of the movies we're discussing, but it reminded me a lot of the Jeff Bridges character in The Fisher King where he the, – the, the, the key is really that he feels responsible for those things, you know, or at least at moments he feels responsible for them and that drives his, you know, his choices. Yeah, I mean I, I think my, my problem with, with this film is that it's twofold. It's like one, I think as, as Dave said, that like his – like there's a clear character arc for him, but it, it's it's not – paced well and then it's just like i i don't know if i find adam driver at least the character he's playing interesting enough to to want to stay with him for i don't know two plus hours of the film like i didn't find his character all that compelling i don't know if you guys i i agree i mean the same complaint with the other terry gilliam movies except for uh time bandits which i felt was a short two hours um mm -hmm. even even as a grown-up I, I think, yeah, the middle of it, it, it's not that it's long. I mean, I can forgive a long movie. It's just that it's repetitive with him shouting her name over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, I, I want, after a while, I was like, okay, okay, stop shouting her name. Um, and it's also that the, like you said, he just wants to do all these things with his imagination and he, and that none of them are really make pushing the plot further along. Um, but I, I did like this movie a lot. I thought it was, I, I thought a lot of these movies were specifically, designed for old men which um or at least at least maybe not a lot of them but maybe at least don quixote and and imaginarium and dr parnassus and uh munchausen so i guess that's three out of five but i think they're very good you know old man movies and and that means they don't have much mass appeal there's not a lot of old 
men who are like, oh, I love movies. Um, I, uh, apologies to the old men listening who are like, what are you talking about? I love movies. We're in the minority. <laughs> Wait, do you, do you mean that they star old men or that they're for an old man audience? I think they're for an old man audience. I feel, okay. I feel that way about Munchausen and Don Quixote and Imaginarium. I, I, I don't know. Do you have a different take on that, though? Oh, I just thought you meant that all three of those have a, a lead character who's played by, you know, um, like an old man with like a great face to sell insurance, like Adam Driver says in, in Don Quixote, right? Like, well, that yeah. that too. But I think they're also, I mean, the, the dilemma in Imaginarium is, you know, this old man who's like, what does my life mean? And I've, you know, I'm trying to do something. I really want to save. I want to leave some kind of legacy. I want to save my daughter. Um, Munchausen is, is, you know, our old our old people still relevant um, in a way. That's one of the themes. And then Don Quixote is, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely made more sense to me. I don't know why it's an old man movie, but having watched it um, as I was watching it, I was like, I'm enjoying this way more than I would have when I was in my teens or twenties or thirties. I, I don't think I would have enjoyed this when I was younger, but right now I'm really, but it's, it's really that kind same, of enjoying it. It's that same theme though. Of, is an old person still relevant in the world? Right. I mean, well, it's that, kind of... and it, but it's also the Terry Gilliam, you know, what's more important, logic or, or just imagination. I, I think, you know, it's that too. And, and how far do you take imagination before everybody who's telling you you're just crazy becomes right? Like, I think that's, you know, which I think becomes, I think that is a, a kind of an old man theme in some ways too, although it, uh, it was also applied to me as a young man, so maybe not. But. Well, I also think like, you know, a film like Time Bandits is very explicitly, you know, geared towards children and i i felt baron munchausen was as well i mean um especially with the you know the 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 young girls essential character um the imaginarium definitely not brazil definitely not and um like the man who killed don quixote it's it's dealing with these um really like you said heavy themes uh, of age and and you know, um, losing relevance, losing importance. And, you know, like, I I think that there were set pieces within the film that worked really well and were affecting. Um, but I think that there were so many like skips along and part of that may be that just like, as I'm going through the film, I'm wondering, okay, is this what's really happening here? Like, like, I don't understand. Oh, okay. This is, this is a dream. This isn't a dream. You know, yeah. the, the, you know, like that type of stuff confused me. And then at the end, you're like, okay, um, he was clearly losing his mind the whole way through, but it wasn't made like, I didn't feel that progression. Yeah, uh, I agree. Organically, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that it's not, I feel like it's, it's, there's just like weird things like the part where, um, <laughs> Uh, they come out and there's this sort of like glittering knight who he jousts with. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out where it's like, oh, no, the townspeople just dress. They like set up. The, apparently they set up this whole <laughs> pavilion and got armor and everything as part of this ploy to lure him back to town. It's like stuff like this, like, you know, it doesn't. That made no sense. To it me. doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't even even as like or it doesn't fall into the fantasy or reality thing at all. Um, yeah. I, I definitely agree. That fake out was super weird and I didn't think really worked. There are a couple of times there's the part where Adam Driver makes out with a, a sheep and um, 
it, like mm. you know because he thinks it's uh he he thinks it's what's the the female character's name in that movie i know dulcinea is yeah her, you know uh, her role Angel- in his angelica film. angelica yeah angelica. so he thinks it's angelica and i was like that actually, I think, maybe even happens a little too soon. It's such a weird moment, and it's really, really funny. So I kind of love it. But in terms of the progression of his madness, I was like, huh, that's kind of a non sequitur that that happened. And then later I was like, oh, okay, he loses it at the end. So that's supposed to be part of it. But it didn't read that way to me. It didn't seem like it was cluing me into something that was happening with his character. Are we 100% sure that he went crazy? Because that wasn't my, that wasn't my uh, read on the movie when I saw it. Although I'm starting to agree with you as you're talking. Um, what, was your, what was your read on it? My read on it was that Don Quixote was never a person, but Don Quixote is uh, like almost a, a, such a strong a concept spirit. that he becomes a spirit. Like not, not that he was ever born, but he's such a strong concept and character that he becomes this kind of independent spirit that can possess people. And so down through the ages, maybe he's just been skipping from person to person, possessing, like he possessed the uh, the actor. And then when the actor's body kind of wore out, he moved into Adam Driver, and he was he was building that through the whole yeah. movie. Or Adam Driver's just picking up the mantle. Yeah, I, could, I that's an interesting read. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just as plausible as that. You know, he went nuts. Like basically, like we're left with he's inhabiting the Don Quixote world in his mind. Either way, so. Yeah, yeah. I really actually really like that idea that the 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 character of Don Quixote is such a strong concept that it somehow has its own independent existence and can kind of you know yeah possess different people. But I feel like I don't know that there's much in the movie to support that reading until the very end. Like, is there anything? Yeah. Earlier in the like like that's the kind of thing I'm saying would need to be well, built up throughout the movie. It's not built up throughout the movie, but there is a scene at the beginning where he's like, I'm a shoemaker. I'm not Don Quixote, you know, and he's totally sane. You know, the guy is totally sane, but Adam Driver is so convinced he's Don Quixote that he becomes Don Quixote. He, he like forces him to assume this character and he does, he manages it, but in doing so, he, he loses himself. And then that, you know, happens to Adam Driver too at the end. And I was like, oh, wow. but you're right. There's not like, if there would have been one more thing about like, you know, there was this guy who used to think he was Don Quixote in these parts as well, but he just died. Um, then that would have cemented it a little more. Cause doesn't the, like Jonathan Price, he starts saying, no, I'm just a shoemaker as he's dying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As he's dying, he, yeah, it leaves, it was, it was very reminiscent of the exorcist um, where, you know, she's possessed through much of the movie. And then at the end, uh, father Karras manages to like, slam her against the floor or against the wall or whatever he does and he's slapping her and he and he gets the demon out of her and he's like and he tells it he goes go into me go into me and then it does and then he jumps out the window and dies and presumably kills the you know sends the demon back to hell while he dies and i and when i watched that scene where he's like no i'm just a shoemaker i was like wow that's just like the end of the exorcist it's like don quixote has left him because his body is dying and and then when adam driver became don quixote i was like oh don quixote was just like the exorcist instead of um you know but the but the the spirit left uh, Jonathan Price and went into uh, Adam Driver. Yeah, I really like that. Um, yeah, I think that the, I mean, like, I, I I kind of feel like what the story is about though is more the way that the dreams kind of can can take over someone's life and not always in a good way. Um, so I kind of like I, I kind of don't know if the lack of agency for the characters that's that's implicit in that reading 
totally aligns with that. I, but maybe I'm misreading what the theme of the movie is supposed to be too. Um, it's also, oh, yeah. go ahead. Oh yeah. I just, I, I like, I was just going to quickly say like, you know, it, it seems like in some ways, uh, Don Quixote is a more grown up Terry Gilliam movie where it is like, instead of the dreamer just being sort of up against this, you know, either not non-existent really, op, you know, opposition or, you know, or completely our hero, it seems like dreams themselves are something that's like, you know, pull tugs in both positive and negative directions. Like, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's a, that's a common theme in, in his work and Gilliam's work, obviously, but like, I, I feel like in his, in his earlier films, like time bandits and Baron Munchausen, that like dreams are positive usually. And even in, even in Brazil, the dreams are positive in the sense that it provides escape from this hell. Whereas like, as you get further along in his career, the dreams become, there's a little bit of like more sinister aspect to them. Right. With huh. like, you know, Don Quixote and, and Imaginarium where it's like, yeah, your dreams could be good or they could go in a really dark direction as well. So I, I wonder if that's kind of Gilliam wrestling with some of his own ideas as he's getting older as a director. That's a good point. Yeah. In Munchausen, especially that ending where it's like, it's revealed that the whole thing was him telling these stories and you think, okay, now there's going to be some kind of injection of reality. And then, you know, it's like open the gates and they open the gates and the enemy is completely dispersed. Um, you know, I guess it's just supposed to be a coincidence, but it seems like it was caused by that. Like basically, you know, if you, if you fantasize it, it becomes real. And that just yeah. seems, yeah. Or, or yeah, like, I don't think discount that's, that's, imagination. I yeah. think that's the, you know, the theme we were talking about, about, you know, superstition versus reason. He's like, no, 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 no. We have to, I think it just comes down to faith. Like, no, you know, have faith in what you, what you're trying to do and don't worry about the reason. And that's, you know goes all the way back to Gilliam's roots, making those flights of fancy in those cartoons in Monty Python. Just have faith in that what you're doing is the right thing and don't worry about the, the realities that are telling everybody else this is not going to work. Yeah, it, it, well, it's interesting to see the development because Time Bandits has a surprisingly dark ending. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about the oh, ending. Yeah, time yeah. We, we've given that short shrift. I'm happy you brought that up. Um, all right, well, let me just say, like, um, you know, Tom, you thought that um, I think Time Bandits is funnier than I did, but I did. The the thing that sticks out in my mind is John Cleese as Robin Hood, oh, where he so has funny. the the bandits who are all these like awful, violent people, and then he's super polite and uh, um, you know, like <laughs> and, crispy, and then, like that was really that was the, everything yeah. he says is what magical. Like people. when he when they when he's like, "What's your name?" and he goes, "Cat," and one of the one of the <laughs> pulls him away, and he goes, "Cat, interesting name." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, John Cleese was brilliant in that. And I also I also love uh Sean Connery as Agamemnon and I yeah. think that's like my favorite scene, well, one of my favorite the whole I love the whole movie. But like that scene where he just he's he's living with Agamemnon and he adopts him as his own child and then he's like, "Oh, we're going to have this big, you know, festival, this big feast." And and then you see the dancers come out and then the moment when they like you know, the little people step down because they were on top of each other's shoulders and you realize, oh, those are those are the, uh, the time travelers and that you see the look on the kid's face. <laughs> and and that music just builds this crescendo and then they take him away through the time hole. And then you see just Sean Connery's face, like, wait, like first he smiles and then his smile slowly fades. And like, yeah. that, even to today, it gives me the chills. It's it's such a moving thing. Me too. Because you, really, you really feel that he loved Kevin as, as a father. And I will say like, 
I saw this movie in the theater. I remember seeing it in the theater and two things scared the shit out of me. The first was when like they come, they, you know, they, the, they come into his bedroom and they start pushing on the wall and the I love wall that. just goes further and further. I love and then, that too. And then the supreme being's face comes out like, "Give me the man." Oh, so like, great! You know, as a kid, I I I think I was uh, six years old, seven years old. I was terrified. I'm like, "Oh my god!" And and then at the end, because you're like, "Oh, he's back home." You know, it was it, like he's back. You know, and basically, it ends like a horror movie. Like his his parents touched the the ultimate evil, the piece of evil, and they vanish. And then the movie ends, and you're like, "Wait." wait, like the fire department left, everyone left, this kid's alone. He just traveled through space and time. Like, like, what does he do now? And like, as a kid, that was horrifying. Like, I was well, like, oh and my when you God. say they, when you say they vanish, I mean, it seems explicit to me that they combust. They're dead. I mean, they're they dead. explode. <laughs> they explode. Yeah. They explode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was, I saw it when I was maybe 13 or 14. So uh, I, I had a different take on it. You know, as a 13 or 14 year old, you're at that age where you're starting to be like, my parents don't know anything um, before you really become convinced they don't know anything before, <laughs> you know, 10 years later, you're convinced they knew everything. Um, but I was at that stage where my parents didn't know anything. And so that really spoke to me. The fact that the family was so hilariously wrong and, and the night showing up in the bedroom was such an exciting, like, you know, that he busts out of the wardrobe was such, it was like a cool, like Narnia moment. Yeah. But it was also like, so exciting that like, oh, something's happening. What's happening? And then that scene you're talking about with the wall, that is just to me, that is like the essence of fantasy. It's like the perfect, mm -hmm. fantastic moment. And then when he's coming, yeah, the head's coming down the, down the corridor and with like the Darth Vader voice almost saying, return the map. And then they fall into nothingness. It's such a perfect like mix of Terry Gilliam's fantastic imagination with plot that it, yeah. it it I don't know I, this this whole movie just blows me away. But you're right, the ending being so um so dark. I I liked as a 13 year old kid who's convinced your parents know nothing. I was like, of course that's what's gonna. You know, I didn't like it. I wasn't like, hooray, the parents are dead. But I was. But at the same time, I was like, of course, you know, the parents aren't gonna listen to the kid. He's a 13 year old kid. He's right. right. He knows what's going on, but they're not listening to him, and they should have. And uh, I just I thought that moment was hilarious, and my friends in high school and junior high, I mean, quoted that around. Don't touch it; it's evil. Yeah. It's evil. <laughs> yeah. I just want to make two quick points. One, if you like, and I I've noticed this on rewatch on rewatches that if you look at Kevin's wall, like where he has all like the little uh, scenes, like toys or like things he cut out of magazines, those are actually the places that he visits. Oh, um, yeah, like like they have the nights and they have. Uh, you know, like the, the, the toys, like the space toys. And then when they're in um, the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness, if you notice, it's made out of Lego blocks. Like there are parts where if you look at the background, yes, like the, the blocks They're huge Legos. Lego blocks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it, it plays with this idea, like, was it his imagination? But I don't think it was, but it, it was like, I, I like that they were they were referencing each other. I do too. And, and I think, you know, I think one thing this movie does masterfully is – I think it's always a mistake in fantasy movies or um, science fiction movies when there's too much fantasy and it's not relatable enough. And I think mm -hmm. this is the perfect mix. I think the kid, Kevin, just absolutely grounds this movie. Like nothing is going to become too far into the imagination because Kevin is, is always there to pull it down. And in a weird way, he's like an Arthur Dent character too where he goes through t through all through time with his bathrobe on. Like that to <laughs> yeah. me, I was yeah, like, wow, he's right. like a little – he's like. 
Arthur Dent Jr. Yeah. All right. So I also just, I don't know if you saw, but this is um, on the Wikipedia page for um, Time Bandits. It says, Apple Inc. worked with anonymous content, Paramount Television, and Media Rights Capital to gain rights for a Time Bandits television series to distribute on Apple TV Plus with Gilliam on board in a non-writing production role and Taika Watiti as the director of the pilot. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, Taika Watiti. Yeah, when you when you for the first half of what you said, I was like, nah, it's not going to work. And then when you said his <laughs> name, I'm like, okay, it could work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely intrigued. It's yeah, I mean, I wonder if it'll be a different uh, protagonist or if it'll pick up where Time Bandits left off because Ooh. you know, yeah. Well, it seems like the thing these days is to bring everyone back as you know, like the age they are now. Oh, know. okay, that's probably what they'll do. Yeah. So the actor who played Kevin is he still acting? I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. Craig Warnock, I think his name is. Yeah. Uh, but if he's not, I mean, they could cast somebody else, you know, as an mm-hmm. adult version of that character. Sure. One last thing about the ending: it is really fascinating, just from a storytelling perspective, how different it is to have a kids movie end with like the kids' parents dying instead of beginning that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, like so many yeah. fairy tales, and like you know, um various stories for kids like James and the Giant Peach I think also starts with like the kid you know the kid's parents dying and we'll sort of accept that but there's something about just like leaving the kid hanging like that it's uh it's really disturbing I'm actually it was terribly disturbing <laughs> I I love it and I would not change it because it's no. so unforgettable but I don't right. quite know what it means or what it is supposed to do for the movie we just watched I, it's just it's just like you know, there's this explosion and the movie is over and you just have to figure it out. I mean, I guess thematically the movie is about how, um, you know, it, the universe is in the hands of an un- uncaring God. And that is the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate way of showing that, I guess. So that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. That's an excellent way to put it. And, and also it could be a little bit that, um, that the movie is also about growing up in a way i think you'd have to massage it around sure. a lot to make that true but but growing yeah. up is you know a big part of growing up is you lose your parents and uh, like i just watched a great uh adaptation of white fang on netflix with my kids and there's a part where white fang's mom you know the jack london book white fang's mom has to leave leave him he gets she gets sold and then the the owner the native american owner tells him uh, that's this is what growing up feels like and I was like, mm. oh, that hit me in the gut because I have a five, five-year-old and a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that that, you know, that moment with Kevin at the end when he, when his parents explode was, is kind of like, here, here's what growing up feels like. It's, it's very sad, but it's very real. That was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> pretty quick, right? Here you it's go. a, you it's a fast now. grow up. It's like, it's yeah. movie. we don't, we don't have 20 years to show you what this feels like. So we're going to compress yeah. it into the. The but there was the also movie. like a, a hint that there was more, right? Because Sean Connery's the fireman, and yeah. Kevin clearly recognizes him, and then and then Sean Connery winks at him, and then yeah. leaves. So you're like, oh wait, wait, what's what's going on here? Yeah. So yeah. like I I always like at the time I was I, I always hoped for a sequel, uh, just to see like what exactly happened, or maybe it was just because I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to imagine Kevin just being all alone with nobody. <laughs> yeah. I also. Also, just um, just on the subject of dark endings, I just want to note that this, there's a really interesting story. I won't go into the whole thing, but, you know, um, the Universal, which had the rights to distribute Brazil in the U.S., thought that the ending was too dark and they wanted to make it a happy ending, sort of like it mm. happened with Blade Runner. And Terry Gilliam refused. And so they decided just not to distribute the movie at all. 
And there's this, there's this really long, interesting story about how he got it distributed. And the very, very short version is, um, he screened it for, uh, uh, students and then some critics saw it. And then he took out a full page ad in Variety that said, Dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil? Signed Terry Gilliam. Sid Scheinberg <laughs> was the head of Universal. And then um, uh, Robert De Niro went on Good Morning America and Terry Gilliam tagged along. And then, you know, before the interview ended, De Niro turns to Gilliam. This is all like set up, right? And says, Oh, aren't you having trouble getting this movie distributed? And so then he like tells the story. And then the critics uh, decided that they were going to nominate it for all their awards, even though it hadn't been released. Wow. And then that sort of pressured the studio ultimately wow. to, to good, release good it. Good for Gilliam. To Gilliam is, he's, yeah. he's Sam. I mean, he's fighting this massive bureaucracy that's like, no, this is how things have to be. Wasn't that the main character's name, Sam? Yeah, Sam Lowry. Yeah. He, Lowry he, yeah. he very much is Sam Lowry. Yeah, like That blows my mind. That's like life imitating art in a huge way he ha- except he won he didn't get lobotomized <laughs> as far as we know we're, we're all just living in terry gilliam's imagination right, <laughs> right. it's funny because i watched a bunch of um documentary like like mini documentaries about the making of the different terry gilliam movies and like in all of them the actors look like totally like exhausted and dirty and you know and everything <laughs> and and they're all like yeah terry he's great he's great He's crazy. And it's like, oh, like every single interview is like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, but so actually I'm curious, um, um, Chandler, you said that, um, so the ones I still haven't watched, the Terry Gilliam directed movies I still haven't watched are Zero Theorem, Tideland, Brothers Grimm, and Jabberwocky, I guess. And you yeah. said, I think you said, I forget, was it Tideland I- you said? I am the only person who loves Tideland. Um, and so I will, I will say, I know this movie is not for everybody. It is so amazing. I mean, for one thing, if you're thinking of female characters in Terry Gilliam movies, uh, Jeliza Rose is just an absolutely fabulous character. I don't think I've ever seen a depiction of childhood in a movie that reminds me, not in terms of what happens to her, but in terms of like the way that she engages with her imagination. It really captures the way that it was, you know, there's this like one wonderful scene where she's playing by herself and she actually scares herself. And I remember having that exact same experience in a very, a very similar way. Like when I, when I Mm -hmm. was a kid, um, where like, you know, she's pretending to be a squirrel and it goes off the rails. Um, and you know, it's just, um, it's a really fascinating, horrifying, um, hypnotic, like exhausting, beautiful, masterpiece in my opinion i i really highly recommend it but you know yeah there's some i, I saw it in the stuff. theater yeah i saw it in the theater and i i actually really liked it i thought it like it it's not for everybody there's it's like you know huge trigger warnings for like child yes. abuse and child abandonment and but i thought it was a really affecting and powerful statement or maybe not statement but just an exploration of what it might be like to have to to live through that reality. And yeah, I remember really liking it, but it's not like something that you like, Hey kids gather around, let's put on time. <laughs> you know, it's it, like, you're going to come out and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel like, like tired, but, but it, it's, it's a powerful film. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Oh yeah. And it really explores the limits of the imagination. Like, you know, um, because she has unlimited imagination and that doesn't, like it, it doesn't allow her to escape 
in in the you know in in any kind of way that like that fixes her circumstances. Um, I mean, at the end, she there's hope for her, but it's still it still is really dark like the whole time. Mm-hmm. Has anyone seen Zero Theorem? Because uh, I'd never even heard of it before, but apparently it looked like it was a more science fiction, you know, Brazil s- kind of thing. I saw that one too. Yeah, um, I, I like that movie. Um, you know, I only have seen it once in the theater, uh, so it's been a while. Um, it was like whenever it came out um, that I saw it, but I did, I did really enjoy it. Um, yeah, Christoph Waltz uh, plays the lead, and he's really good. Because I guess I don't know if we said, but all these movies, these last couple, are like got poor to very like mixed to very poor reviews. I would say Zero Theorem feels a little bit like you know the poor man's Brazil. It's like um, a lot of the same themes, and you can just tell it was made on a very shoestring budget um, for how visually audacious he wants it to be. Like it still it still looks great, but there's just a feeling of constraint about like the number of characters and locations and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely worth seeing, but it's like not my it's not my favorite, but it's also not my least favorite. It would be somewhere in the middle of my my Terry Gilliam viewing. And then Brothers Grimm, I would say, again, I haven't seen that since it was in the theaters, but I think that might be my very least favorite Terry Gilliam movie. Um, yeah, he, he, I think he said that had the most studio interference and he wasn't very happy with how it turned out. It felt yeah, it's like kind it. of a run of the mill, uh, you know, I actually, there was another movie about Hansel and Gretel that was made. That was just like a kind of one of those B movies that I liked more. <laughs> Yikes. It was very similar, you know, it was like, it was very yeah, similar. it came out tone. around the same time, didn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, as action, as like Monster Hunters or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so we're all, we're all out of time, so we need to wrap this up. So let's, how about just some final thoughts on this whole experience of uh, watching or rewatching these Terry Gilliam movies. So, uh, so Matt, final thoughts. Um, yeah, so I, I, I still love Terry Gilliam. Uh, he is one of my uh, favorite directors. I, I think that... Um, his films are um, not your typical run-of-the-mill Hollywood uh, fare, and that's what I like about them. Uh, sometimes, because of that, they can drag or sag in the middle. They sometimes tend to be a little long, but uh, my favorite uh, of his films and one of my favorite movies of all times is Time Bandits. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go see it now. Um, but also, uh, which we didn't talk about on this, or not that much on this panel, is... Um, uh, 12 Monkeys and Fisher King. Uh, 12 Monkeys is one of my favorite, other than Time Bandits, uh, time travel films of all, you know, uh, of all time. And uh, Fisher King is just like a wonderful exploration of, of mental illness and and suffering. And, and really, it's a lot of humanity in that, in that film. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Terry Gilliam, great director. Check out his films if you haven't. Um, they're not for everyone, but uh, I think there's a lot to enjoy there. Yeah, uh, Tom. Final thoughts. I agree with everything Matt just said, except that his films aren't for everyone. I I think that he's you're right about most of his films, but I think Time Bandits is almost for everyone. It's it's like a lost Monty Python movie. It's very funny. It's got a better plot than any of the Python movies. It's um every second is a joy to watch. Just the love that he put into every every little corner of that movie is is astounding. That he could pull all that off, even to the opening titles which look like cgi but aren't because of his brilliance with animation um it was back before there really was cgi but he made it look like there was and uh and yeah i I think you know overall i i'm envious of this guy who just has was born with this 
fantastic, fertile imagination superpower, and then was able to make a living off it and and make so many great works of art out of it, despite the fact that nobody wanted him to do it, that <laughs> he had to fight for every inch of what he did. And sometimes it crashed, you know, sometimes the, the, the wagon went off the off the trail. And sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it soared beautifully. You know, things are things are perfect. So I I just I'm really envious of a guy who can be born with that gift and not waste it and make it into everything that he made it into. My hat's really off to him. I think he's an astounding human being. Yeah, cool. And uh, Chandler, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would uh, not be the writer that I am without Terry Gilliam. I mean, he has, you know, totally like taken a permanent residence in my own imagination, which I think is such a testament to his. Um, I think that, you know, it's worth seeing any of his movies, but um, I think for like, yeah, for the uninitiated, I don't know. I guess it depends on, you know, if you hate your job, watch Brazil. If you're falling <laughs> in love, watch Fisher King. And, um, <laughs> you know, if you're in a dark place and want to stay there, watch Tideland. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'll, I'll leave people with that. And if you're turning into Don Quixote, watch that one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, like some of these movies like 12 Monkeys and Holy Grail, you know, that he's done are, you know, all-time favorites of mine. Um, I, I definitely, Brazil was was way better than I was expecting. So it it, I, it had totally, to me, earned its reputation as a must-watch movie. And like I said, I mean, like a lot of his movies are not as disciplined as I would maybe like, but it's impossible at some level not to love them and love him because he's just so passionate um and like uh tom said so imaginative and that just comes through and everything that he does and so you know just be aware that you know the movies might go go on longer than you want them to but there's uh there's good stuff in all of them um that makes them worth watching um and maybe we can come back sometime and talk about uh some of these other ones but for now we're gonna have to wrap things up there so we've been speaking with matthew kressel tom grenzer and chandler clang smith so thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Goodbye. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Matthew Kressel, Tom Gerenser, and Chandler Klang-Smith for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show... Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.